The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Mark in the 12th chapter and the 34th verse. The 34th verse in the 12th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Mark. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any question. We are going to consider, in other words, the case of this scribe who came to our Lord after our Lord had been dealing with the Herodians and the Sadducees. Perhaps I'd better remind you again of the exact details. One of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifice. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God, and no man after that durst ask him any question. Now, we are considering this whole matter of the kingdom of God. We are doing so for the tenth successive Sunday evening. And we are doing so because, according to our Lord's own teaching, there is nothing that is so important for us and so urgently relevant to our whole position and condition as individuals and as citizens of this world, then that we should know the teaching concerning the kingdom of God. Seek ye first, he says, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. People are fussed and bothered about other things. They're unhappy, they're in trouble, they're seeking satisfactions. It's no good, he says. You might as well give up. You'll never get them that way. Seek ye first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So the most important question for every one of us in this world at this moment is, how does one enter the kingdom of God? Now, our Lord began his ministry by saying, the time is fulfilled. The prophets have been prophesying about the coming of this kingdom. The kingdom of God means the rule of God, the reign of God the blessings that God showers upon his people, his citizens. And they had been prophesying and predicting that it was going to come, this wonderful age when the kingdom of God should come. Our Lord said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand, it's drawn near. Clearly, his teaching is that it has drawn near in him himself. He is the king, and the kingdom comes with him. So he has come to invite men and women to enter into the kingdom of God. 
He spent his three years of ministry doing that. He taught, he preached, he worked miracles in order to give people some glimpse of the power. He says, if I by the finger of God cast out devils, then the kingdom of God is drawn nigh unto you. All this was done with the object of drawing men and women into the kingdom. He invites them to come. Come, he says unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He asks them to learn of him. In other words, to come into his kingdom. That's the whole secret. And yet, as we've been seeing Sunday night after Sunday night, men and women, instead of hearing this gracious, wonderful invitation and accepting it and crowding into the kingdom, instead of that, argued with him, put questions with him. You indeed were reading the four Gospels, cannot but come to the conclusion that they regarded him as an enemy. They didn't treat him as the one who had left the courts of heaven and had come into the world in order to give men salvation and peace and joy and the blessings of the kingdom. They treat him as an enemy. They're always arguing with him, disputing with him, trying to trap him and to catch him. Never did anyone suffer in this world as the Son of God suffered. Why was that? Well, I've been trying to show that there's only one answer to that, and that is their complete misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom of God. And we've seen something already of the variation and the variety of objection and of difficulty in this understanding. It's almost incredible, but it is a fact. There it is. It's recorded before us. Every possible misunderstanding of the kingdom and how to enter it has been displayed by these people. Now, I've been working on a rough classification. We started out with the general statements of our Lord concerning the kingdom. We then took a whole series on the misunderstandings of the very essential nature of the kingdom. And then recently we've been looking at misunderstandings and misconceptions with regard to the way in which the kingdom is to be entered. And we've been looking at that for three or four Sunday nights, ending last Sunday night with the case of the so-called rich young ruler. But still, we haven't finished, we haven't exhausted what we are told here about all this. Here is yet uh, another case, and a very significant one, and a very important one it is. Now, it's interesting to notice that we have recorded all these possible misunderstandings And I believe that that has happened because of the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God. For we differ in our difficulties, as we do in most other things. We differ in our precise misapprehensions. And I believe that God in his kindness has recorded all this in order that your particular case may be dealt with somewhere or another. And that is why it is always right and good to examine these various cases. And each one speaks to a different kind and a different class of person. But between them, they speak to us each and every one. Now then, I say, here is yet uh, another case. Here's yet uh, another man who's in difficulties about this kingdom. But uh, coming to this man, we come... uh, to one who has certain features which entitle us to say that he is in an advanced position with respect to all the others. Here is a man that won an encomium from our Lord. 
if you like, even a word of encouragement. Here is the first case we've considered where our Lord has said to a man, Thou art not far from the kingdom. So that I say, we are here now moving forward a little. Here is a man who can be described, if you like, as on the way. There are some who haven't moved. They're immobile. They're far away. But this man is on the way. Here is a man who's almost in the kingdom. Here is a man who is not far from the kingdom. So that obviously he has certain features. The case has certain features which put it in a category on its own. I don't put him in the same category as the ones we've been considering the last three or four Sunday nights. Those men at the end of Luke 9 and the rich young ruler that we were looking at last Sunday night and so on. Nor, indeed, people who correspond to the condition of those members of the church at Corinth who seemed to think that it was enough to say, Lord, Lord, and were not very careful about their life. They were deceiving themselves. And they had to be told that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. They mustn't be deceived. Very well, this man represents an advance. And as we come to analyze his case now, I think we shall see that uh, this man represents large numbers of people at the present time. What an odd position this is. But here it is. Here is a man of whom it can be said, Thou art not far from the kingdom. I believe there are many like that. There are probably many like that in this congregation. God grant that as we look at this man and analyze his case, that you may hear your own case being analyzed. God grant that through our exposition of this, God may be speaking to you and showing you what it is that keeps you out. The fatal thing that just ruins all you've done hitherto. Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Very well. The matter divides itself up, it seems to me, quite naturally and inevitably. In terms of what our Lord said about the men. When Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Now then, what is the teaching? Well, there are three great principles here. The first is this. The first is a general point about our relationship to the kingdom. There's the kingdom, and our Lord says about this man, thou art not far from the kingdom. He's in relationship to it. But this statement of our Lord throws very great light upon the question of our relationship to the kingdom. And there are many who go wrong at this point, so let me expand this a little. The first thing, it seems to me, that stands out here very clearly, as it does, of course, in the whole of the New Testament, is that there is no vagueness nor any indefiniteness about our relationship to the kingdom of God. What I mean is this. You're either in it or else you're outside it. Now, the whole tragedy of today is that people think that this is a very vague matter. We are living in an age, as I'm never tired of pointing out, that uh, dislikes doctrine, dislikes definitions, dislikes theology. Christianity, we are told, is a vague spirit, something that you catch 
Christianity is caught, not taught, and so on. But it's a vague general spirit that you can't say that a man is a Christian, you can't say a man isn't a Christian. The only position is that everybody can hope that they are Christians, but you can't define these things. That's the prevailing mood and climate of thought at the present time. But I suggest to you that that is a blank contradiction of the plain teaching of the Scriptures. Thou art not far from the kingdom. In other words, you're not in it. You're outside it. Our Lord can tell whether a man's in or out. The teaching here everywhere is that a man himself ought to be able to tell whether he's in or out. You see, this isn't a question of some kind of oasis in the midst of a surrounding country. No, no, the kingdom of God is sharply defined. And there's a gate of entry into this kingdom. We go further. Our Lord says it is a straight gate. It's not a very broad and wide one where people can slip in and you're not sure whether they've gone in or not or who's gone in or how many has gone in. Not at all. It's a straight gate. And it leads to a narrow way. Indeed, I'm never tired of putting it like this, that the straight gate of entry into the kingdom is a turnstile. And it only admits one at a time. You may say, but you can have a large number of converts in a meeting. All right, but in the sight of God, they're one by one. They're individuals. You can't go in crowds into the kingdom. God deals with us one by one. This is an individual matter. We can't be saved in families. The fact that your parents were Christian doesn't mean that you were Christian. The fact that your forebears have always been Christian doesn't mean that you are a Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian country. No, no, it's a very individual matter, this. We come face to God, we're face to face with God one by one, and God looks upon us and deals with us one by one. There's a time in the life of every man who's a citizen of the kingdom of God when, like Jacob of old, he was left alone. When you're isolated from your nearest and dearest, from your relatives and friends, and you're alone, face to face with God. It's an individual matter. You enter in by a straight gate. And as it is this kind of entrance, you can be quite certain whether a man is in or whether he's out. It isn't so broad, I say, that you can slip in and hardly know that you are going in because the gate was so wide. Never. It's a straight gate. It's a narrow way. Now, this is a very vital point, obviously. If a man is not sure whether he's a Christian or not, I take leave to suggest that he's not a Christian. You see, the Christian is a man, according to the New Testament, who can say something like this, I was, I am. That's how the apostle put it about those Corinthians, wasn't it? He says, and such were some of you, they'd been drunkards, adulterers, fornicators, etc. Such were some of you. But you're not like that now. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The Apostle Peter uses exactly the same terminology. Who were not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's it. The Apostle Paul again puts it to the Colossians. He says, you've been translated from the kingdom of darkness or of Satan into the kingdom of his dear son. There's a movement. Something's happened. And he knows it's happened to them and they know that it's happened to them as well. 
You can't receive the life of God in your soul and be doubtful as to whether anything's happened to you. No, no, this thing is quite clear. A man is either in the kingdom or else he is outside the kingdom. You that sometime were afar off have been made nigh by the blood of Christ, says the apostle, again to the Ephesians. So I lay down this great principle. That there is no vagueness or indefiniteness about this. A man is either in the kingdom or else he is not in the kingdom. And all this modern suggestion of indefiniteness and vagueness is of the devil. The Christian, as I'm trying to show on Sunday mornings, is a man who should know in whom he has believed. He knows that he's no longer what he was. He knows where he stands. He knows that he's in the kingdom of God. Very well, that's here on the surface. But secondly, under this heading, though I say that there, are, there is no vagueness nor indefiniteness and that a man is either in or out, we are nevertheless entitled to say that uh, there are variations in people's relative positions with respect to this kingdom. Now our Lord says about this man, thou art not far from the kingdom. He didn't say that about everybody. But he does say it about this man. In other words, there is your kingdom. Well, now, outside that kingdom, people can be in one of many, many positions. I've already quoted what the apostle says to those members of the Ephesian church. They were Gentiles. And the Gentiles, he describes as people who were afar off. But the Jews, before they became Christians, he does not describe as afar off. They were near. The gospel, he says, is preached to, he preached peace to them that were afar off and to them that were nigh. The Jews were in a very different position from the pagans. The Jews were on the very doorstep of the kingdom. The pagans were about as far away from the kingdom as a man can possibly be. The Jews were monotheists. The Gentiles were not. They believed in a variety of gods. Look at the people in Athens. The whole place was cluttered up with their temples to their various gods. The Jew had advanced well beyond that. He was a monotheist. He knew there was only one God, and so he was much nearer than those who were still in paganism and polytheism. And it is still true to say that um, there are men and women who are in very different positions with respect to their relationship to the kingdom of God. There are people in London tonight who have never given it a thought. There are people in London tonight who have never read the Bible and are not interested in it. They don't know its barest elements. They're not interested in God or in the Lord Jesus Christ nor in the soul. They're living the kind of life that we know is being lived in this great city. Afar off. But there are others who are very interested and very concerned in these things. There are those who are reading their Bibles, attending services, listening to lectures on the wireless, reading books. They're interested, they're concerned. Now, I say that they're not in the same position as the others relative to the kingdom of God. Thou art not far from. He said that about nobody else. This is the first time we've come across that in our consideration of the position of people relative to the kingdom of God. 
And then I go on to a third point under this principle, and it's this. Isn't it amazing to notice how far one can travel in the direction of the kingdom of God and yet still be outside it? I'm going to show you in a moment how far this man had come. Here he is, as it were, standing just off outside that gate. But still he's outside. Isn't it astonishing to notice how, how far a man can travel? Oh, I've said it before in this series. I must say it again tonight, you know, as you read these Gospels. Our Lord seems to be the complete antithesis of many a modern evangelist. Far from doing everything he can to drag people in, our Lord seems to be holding them out. We've already had illustrations of that. He seems to make it difficult. There's great truth in that, as I'm going to show you. But here it is. We are struck by the fact that a man can come so far and still not be in, which leads me to my final point and to this first general principle, which is this. That though there are these different and varying positions occupied by men outside the kingdom of God, in the last analysis they don't matter at all. There is no advantage in being not far from the kingdom. What, you say? Do you mean to say that the man who's at the very door has no advantage over the man who's the other end of the world? Precisely. And that is where the devil delivered so many. That, it seems to me, was the essential trouble with this man. This is where we fool ourselves. We say, look at that man there, living in vice and sin, never giving God a thought. There he is, the other end of the world from the kingdom. But I'm not there. I'm very interested. I'm standing just outside the door. But my dear friend, what advantage is it to you when the end comes that you are just outside the door? That doesn't mean you are in. You are no more in the kingdom than that man who is the other end of the world from the kingdom. So near... And yet so far, almost persuaded, on the very threshold, what's it matter? How does it help? What's the value of being almost if you're not in? What's the value of being not far from if you're still outside? We recognize these differences, but we must hurry on like this to say that finally they're of no value, they're of no help, they'll be of no avail at the bar of eternal judgment. Oh, let me use a simple and an obvious illustration. You may be standing in a bus queue. You've had a very heavy day and you're very tired. And suddenly the bus comes along and you begin to feel hopeful and happy. You say, no, I'm absolutely on my way home. And the queue is moving forward and you are moving forward. And the person right in front of you has just gone on. Suddenly the conductor holds out his hand. You're not allowed on. You were almost in, but the trouble is you were not in. And you have to wait until the next bus comes. The fact that you were the next man to get on doesn't mean that you've got on. You're still not on. The bus has gone without you, and you're left standing in the queue. Well, now it's exactly like that. Thou art not far from the kingdom. Oh, how easily it can be misunderstood. The Lord was praising the men. There's no question about it, as I'm going to show you. But what's the value of it? The man is outside. He's not in. And therefore I ask you as I finish this section, this one question. Are you in, my friend? 
Are you in the kingdom of God? Do you know that you are in the kingdom of God? Very well, let's leave it at that and hurry to the second point, which is this. Why does our Lord say about this man and all who are like him that he is not far from the kingdom of God? This is, I say, praise. It's an encomium. Our Lord obviously liked this man and he liked certain things about him. So he says, you, you, you are not far from the kingdom. I'll say that about you. What is it that brings a man into this position? And here, of course, the key word is the word discreetly. We are told that when our Lord saw, Jesus saw that he answered discreetly. Now, that's all right, discreetly is quite a good word, but let me give you some others which will help to bring out the meaning. When Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, when Jesus saw that he answered sensibly, those are equally good translations of this word. Now, this is a very good and a very interesting point for us, isn't it? Whatever we have to say against this man, our Lord tells us that he had an intelligent interest in the kingdom of God. Why am I emphasizing that? Well, I'm emphasizing it, of course, because the average person thinks today that the only people who are Christians are the unintelligent. Modern men come of age, scientific era. The age of the astronaut, man, great man. And anybody who's still a Christian is just an ignoramus, he's a fool. Sob stuff, emotionalism. Isn't that the common idea? People dismiss Christianity, they know nothing at all about it. Well, what's the matter with them? Well, there's only one thing to say about such people. They're completely unintelligent. Our Lord praises a man for being intelligent. And for using his mind and his reason. Let me put this very plainly. There is nothing that I know of under heaven that makes me think as much as this gospel. And I suggest to you, my friends, that already in this service, listening to me for under half an hour already, you have been thinking more and exercising more reason than the men and the women who spent their day reading the Sunday newspapers and the gossip and all the rest of it. But they're too intelligent to come to a place of worship. Oh, they're too intelligent to be a Christian. It's the exact opposite, you see. There is nothing under heaven that so makes men think and reason and ponder and meditate as this blessed gospel of the glorious God. And when our Lord finds a man thinking and using the faculties that God has given him, he says, good. He saw that he'd answered intelligently. He saw that he'd answered sensibly. He saw that he'd answered discreetly. Very well, but let me work that out and show you how the man used his intelligence. You see, this man, because he was intelligent and because he was using his mind and his reason, he uh, isn't antagonistic to our Lord, and he doesn't come to him uh, just in order to trip him and to catch him. Now, you remember what we were told about the Pharisees and the Herodians. They send unto him certain of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his word. And they came praising our Lord and fawning, but he saw through it. Jesus answering said unto them, Before I come to that, he knowing their hypocrisy said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. Now, that's unintelligent. 
But our Lord praises this man because he's an intelligent man. And he doesn't come to him in that way nor in that kind of spirit. Uh, this man didn't come to our Lord just to put a trick question in order to get him into confusion and in order that he could take him up on a word and then have the pleasure of having caught him. Now, you see, the Pharisees and Herodians and the Sadducees were simply out to catch our Lord. They didn't want knowledge. They didn't want information. They didn't want help. They didn't want instruction. They were just out to be clever and to trip him and to catch him. But this man's too intelligent for that. You know, it's only unintelligent people who do that sort of thing. Are you, my friend, still in the stage of saying that you're not a Christian because you don't know who Cain's wife was? If you are, you're very unintelligent. Or are you still saying, I'm not a Christian because, you know, what about that fish that swallowed Jonah? Are you still bringing out the old chestnuts? If you are, you're just showing you're not intelligent. Intelligent people don't do that sort of thing. Oh, that's just being childish, as if you could dismiss the whole of this and the whole story of the Christian church and of Christianity by just being clever and bringing out your trick or your catch questions. I take it that there's nobody in this congregation who is so unintelligent. I'm assuming you're like this men that you have got sense and that you've got a certain amount of understanding, and that you are not out just a down Christianity. I take it that you are so much a failure in life yourself, and that you're so amazed at the condition of England today, that you say this is no time for playing or for being clever. We want truth. We want knowledge of God. We want to know if this gospel can help us. I take it you're serious people. You're intelligent people. You're sensible people. Our Lord praises a man who's intelligent. He doesn't simply try to catch him out. More. The man shows that he's intelligent by showing that he has an appreciation. He's got an appreciation of our Lord himself. We read here, one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him. You see, he's not a Christian, he's not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's been listening to this conversation and argumentation and disputation between our Lord and the Pharisees and Herodians and then the Sadducees. And he says to himself, well, this is a remarkable person. He's only a carpenter, but he's got wonderful insight. He liked the way he answered. He noticed that he'd handled them well and he'd answered them well. And he's man enough and honest enough and intelligent enough to say, this person is a person I want to ask him a question. This man can tell me something. He's drawn by Jesus, his personality and his whole handling of the situation. And this is a very good thing to say about a man. Have you come face to face with the person of Jesus of Nazareth? Or are you in that unintelligent position of dismissing the whole thing because of some little silly detail? Have you felt that there's a person here, that there's someone you've got to reckon with, that there's been a personality in this world that stands out? Are you ready to listen to him? Our Lord praises the men who is prepared to do that. But not only that, he's shown an appreciation of his teaching also, of his answers. He noticed that he had answered them well. What does that mean? Well, I think the two previous cases, the account of the two previous cases, answers it for us. Our Lord, in answering the other people, had shown a very profound understanding of the Scriptures. And this was a scribe. He was a man whose business it was to copy the Scriptures. 
He says, this man knows his scriptures. I like his interpretation of the scriptures. He's answering them in terms of the scriptures. He doesn't philosophize, but he answers in terms of the scripture. He quotes scripture to them. And this man liked it because he knew that ultimately we have no knowledge in these matters at all, apart from what we have in the scriptures. Christianity is not a philosophy. It isn't what men conjure up in their own minds. We know nothing apart from what has been revealed. And here is one who stands on the revelation. And the scribe liked him for that and appreciated that. And not only that, he noticed how in dealing with the Sadducees, our Lord had not only asserted and defended, but had preached the doctrine of the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And our Lord had given them a quotation of scripture that put them immediately into difficulties. He believes in the resurrection. And this man appreciates that. He's a scribe. He believes in the resurrection. There was that division between these people and the Sadducees. So he has an appreciation of Christian teaching and Christian doctrine. And he notices our Lord's emphasis upon the soul. Render unto Caesar, he says, the things that are Caesar's, but render unto God the things that are God's. He likes this emphasis on the soul and on the coming judgment and the resurrection. All that, he says, is sound teaching and doctrine. And he has an appreciation of it. He's intelligent in his understanding of the person and of his teaching. He goes further. Did you notice how he adds something to what our Lord said to him? He asks his question, which is the first and the greatest commandment of all. Our Lord gives the answer about loving the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. That's the first. The second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth. For there is... One God. That was absolutely vital to him. This was the peculiar treasure that the Jews had been had, had given unto them. This belief in and knowledge of the one and only true and living God. And there is no other. And he says to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul. And with all the strength and to love his neighbor as himself. Is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Our Lord hadn't mentioned that, but this man, he's intelligent. What does he show here? Well, do you see, he shows here very clearly that it's no use a man relying upon forms of religion, burnt offerings and sacrifices. That was so many people were doing. They believed in God. They went on sinning. They said, it's all right. I've sinned against God, but if I take a burnt offering, it'll be all right. If I do something terrible, it doesn't matter. I'll take a sacrifice. Be all right. Everything cleared. You see, live as you like, go and confess to the priest, all right, all clear. Get down on your knee, all right, do some good acts, give some great donation to some cause. The good you do cancels out the evil you do. Burnt offerings and sacrifices. Externals in religion, good deeds as a way of pleasing God. This foolish, terrible, unintelligent belief that God can be bought. That as long as we pay an occasional visit to his house, everything's cleared. As long as we now and again go out of our way and offer something to God by way of a sacrifice, God is going to give everything all the all clear to us and we're all going to be happy ever afterwards. No, no, says this man, God can't be bought. God can't be bought by burnt offerings and sacrifices. God can't be bought by our good deeds, our occasional repentances. No, no, that isn't it, he says. And then he goes on to the next point. 
He realizes the essential demand of God's law and the essentially spiritual character of that demand. He says, you know, Master, you're right. There is one God and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart and all the understanding and all the soul and all the strength and your neighbor as yourself. That's the thing that God demands in the law. He says these others, they're arguing about the details and the minutiae of the law. They tithe mint and rue and anise and come in. It's all wrong. They've never seen the spiritual character of the law. Being right with God, he says, is not just a collection of mechanics or of isolated details. The thing that God calls for is that men should love him with the whole of his being and serve him and love his neighbor as himself. He's got a spiritual understanding of the law. And that's a tremendous thing to say about a man. The Pharisees in general, they hadn't got it. They said, as long as I don't actually murder a man physically... The commandment which says thou shalt not kill is all right as far as I'm concerned. They said, ah, oh, I've never actually committed adultery. Therefore, I can smile in the face of the commandment that says thou shalt not commit adultery. They hadn't realized the spiritual content of the law. Our Lord interprets it to say, if thou sayest about thy brother, thou fool, thou hast already murdered him. If you look at a woman to lust with her, you've already committed adultery. That's it, the spiritual nature of the law. But above all, that God demands this total allegiance to himself. That God wants a man to live to him and to his glory. That he's made him for that and he expects that from him. This man had seen all that and it is because of that that our Lord says to him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. You see how he's advanced. You see the steps he's taken. You see his interest, his concern. He's at the very threshold. He's on the doorstep. Thou art not far from the kingdom. Thou hast seen that God is calling upon men to live to his glory. He wants their love, his totalitarian demand. You've seen it. Thou art not far from the kingdom. You've seen through the uselessness of all sham and pretense and works and externals in religion. You've seen the spiritual character of it all. Thou art not far from the kingdom. And yet, he's still outside the kingdom. He's not inside the kingdom. He's not far from. That's no good. He's not in He's outside. He's looking in through the door, through the gate, as it were. But he's not in. He's out. What is it? Well, let me just give you some headings as I close. Why was it true of this excellent young scribe that he is still only in the position of being not far from the kingdom instead of being inside the kingdom? Well, it's all here. It's all on the surface. It doesn't need any critical or exegetical acumen in order to explain this. It, it's all here. Have you seen it, my friend? Here's the first trouble. Oh, his interest was only theoretical and intellectual. And that is where I say he comes as such a warning to many good, intelligent young people at the present time, and indeed middle-aged and old people also. I say he's outside because his interest is only theoretical, it's only intellectual. Here he is. He's been listening to our Lord, arguing and debating with the Pharisees and Herodians and then with the Sadducees. He says, this is wonderful. 
This man really have never known anybody like him. He's got a command. He's got an understanding. He's got an insight. He marshals his scriptures. He's wonderful in his argumentation. Now then, let's hear what he's got to say about this. He, his opinion is really worth having. And so he puts his question. But I think I can show you that he was interested only in a theoretical and in an intellectual matter. You know, religion can be very interesting. It's still a fairly popular thing, you know. A notorious book published not long ago has been a very good seller. Thousands of copies sold. Why? Well, people are still interested in religion. It's always a good uh, talking point, religion, isn't it? I think they have on the television something they call meeting point. And uh, there you meet, you see, and you have a discussion. It's rather good to have a discussion about religion. And, well, yes, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. And uh, you can have a very intelligent discussion, and you can read books about it all, and uh, you can read the magazines, and you can read articles. Uh, people say, you know, I'm tremendously interested in religion. Never go to a place of worship, of course, but I'm tremendously interested in religion. And I like reading about it and talking about it and arguing and debating about it. And they are, and in a sense, they're perfectly genuine. But you see, it's all theoretical and all just intellectual. Which is the first and the greatest commandment? Now, I'm interested in that. I, I know the arguments. I know the arguments of my fellow scribes and Pharisees. I'm well aware of all that, but you know, it seems to me to be beside the point. Now, I, I'd like to know which you think is the first and the greatest. I'm tremendously interested to know your answer. Oh, I've met dozens and dozens of people who are in that position. They're very nice people. They're generally intellectual people. And they say that they're very intrigued about this whole matter of religion. And they're anxious to have my opinion on this, that, and the other. But you see, it never goes further than that. It stops at the level of the intellect. It is something purely theoretical. It's a terrible thing, this. Let's warn one another and let's all warn everybody about this. A man may think he's a Christian, but what he's really interested in is theology. There's nothing more intelligent than to be interested in theology. Some of the greatest books ever written in this world have all been about religion and about theology. You grapple with the problems, these philosophical problems. You see, that's why these books sell. What is God? Is he up there or is he out there or is it depth? What? Ah, this, this is wonderful, this. I, I, I do like reading books which tell me something about the being of God. And so, you see, God becomes a subject and we are investigating and looking. It's a most thrilling intellectual thing if you really got an intellect. But the terrible thing is that so many stop at that point. They never advance beyond the realm of the intellect and the realm of theory. This man stopped there. Let me prove it to you. I prove it to you like this because in the second place, with all his interest in the law, the first and the chiefest point in the law, it never seems to occur to him that he ought to ask this question. Have I kept the law? Isn't this something almost inconceivable? Here's a young man who says, Master, tell me, which in your opinion is the first and the chiefest? Our Lord gives his reply. He says, there it is. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Then listen. The scribe said unto him, Well, Master, 
Thou hast said the truth. You're perfectly right. No doubt about it at all. You've said the truth. There is one God and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Well done, Jesus. You've given a marvelous answer. I am in entire agreement with what you say. And he leaves it at that. Now that's the tragedy. The first and the chiefest commandment of God is that I should love him with all my heart and soul and mind and strength and my neighbor as myself. But the moment I agree with that, surely I ought to go on and ask this question. Am I doing that? Have I done that? If this is the thing that God asks me to do, have I done it? You see, the man is content purely with an intellectual answer. He doesn't go any further. Quite right, he says, you know, that's what I always say in the arguments myself. You know, we've had many of these discussions. I've always said that this is the first and the chiefest thing. You're quite right, Master. He praises our Lord. He says, quite right, how excellent is your answer. But my dear friend, the law of God is not here for you to applaud, it's here for you to apply. Listen to Paul putting it like this, not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. And this is where this man fails and fails so lamentably. It was the whole trouble with the whole nation of the Jews. They said, we are God's people, that God has given us the law. Those Gentiles, they're without the pale. They haven't got a law. They're lawless people. We've got the law. And they thought because they had the law that all was well and that they were saved. No, no, says Paul. The fact that you've got it doesn't mean you're right. Have you kept it? God hasn't made you just custodians and guardians of the law. God doesn't want you to applaud it. He wants you to apply it. He doesn't want you to agree with it. He wants you to practice it. He doesn't want your praise. He wants your practice. This foolish man never faced the question. He agrees theoretically about the law. Quite right, as if you and I were to say here tonight, this is all God wants. This is the only thing that matters, that a man should love the Lord his God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength and his neighbor as himself. Very good. Let's go home. Wonderful. We've settled the question. But you haven't settled the question. The law demands that you carry this out, that you fulfill it. Have you fulfilled it? This man never faced that question. And that is why he's not in the kingdom. He's still outside. He's got a very intelligent understanding and he agrees. But he hasn't applied it. He hasn't gone on. He stopped and he should have gone on. He should have said, well, in the light of that. He's never repented. But let me show you something still more important. He doesn't go on to ask the question that follows that. For the next question is this. What does a man do when he realizes that he hasn't kept the law? Yes, that's the law. I haven't kept the law. What do I do now? There is the law of God. I'll have to face it in the bar of eternal judgment. I haven't kept it. What do I do? What can a man do when he realizes that he hasn't fulfilled and kept the law, the holy law of God? 
This man never put that question. He doesn't show any sign of it at all. He's so pleased that our Lord agrees with what he's always said. He's got the answer that he expected. Away, he's ready to go. Everything's all right. There's no acknowledgement of failure. There is no sense of need. He doesn't realize his precarious position. He doesn't realize his need of salvation. He's a pure theorist, interested in religion. Doesn't see that what he agrees with condemns him. He doesn't ask this vital question, what shall I do or must I do to be saved? He doesn't realize that his own knowledge condemns him and puts him, I say, in this position where he should be desperate, not a sign of it. So he's still outside. And that brings me to my very last point, which is this. He never realized who the Lord Jesus Christ was and why he'd come into this world. Or he wouldn't left, have left off at that point. If he'd seen the real significance of what the law is, if he'd seen his own failure to keep it, if he'd seen that therefore he's under the wrath of God and excluded from the life of God, he would have been desperate, he'd have realized his need, he'd have cried for help, and especially he would have asked this person who's standing before him, whom he's admired, who's got such a grasp of the scriptures, who seems to have such insight and understanding, he would have turned to him, he'd have fallen at his knees and said, look here, can you help me? I haven't kept the law, I've broken it, I don't love God, no man can, can you help me, what do I do? What must I do to be saved? But he didn't come near to asking the question. He doesn't realize that all have failed to keep the law, himself included. He doesn't realize the truth of the word that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He hasn't realized that it's true of him as of everybody, that there is none righteous, no, not one. He doesn't realize that it's true of him and all others that the whole world lieth guilty before God and condemned and facing hell. He doesn't realize it. And that is why he's still outside. He doesn't realize above all that the only one who can help a man in that position is the very one to whom he gave his original question. For if he had but realized that he is the Son of God incarnate, the everlasting Word made flesh, walking the roads of Galilee, teaching, working miracles, soon to be nailed on a cross, he would have realized that this Son of God had come into the world for this reason. Because the whole world is indeed guilty before God. He says, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. He came into the world because the law of God condemns us all. No man has loved God. No man can, in the sense, demanded not his neighbor as himself. We are therefore all lost. He came. Why did he come? Let Paul answer. He was made of a woman. Made under the law. What for? To redeem them that are under the law. You can't get into the kingdom of God except you keep the law of God. And we can't. There's only one who's ever kept it. He came into the world in order that he might keep it. He was made of a woman made under the law. He became a man in order that he might put himself under this law that condemns us. And he lived it. He honored it. He kept it to the full. He hasn't failed in any iota. 
But he went even beyond that. The law of God must be honored and he has honored it. But the law of God has been broken and the punishment for the breaking of the law is death. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth it shall die. Here is the condemnation of the law upon sin and evil and transgression. And it will exact its penalty. And he came and took on him human nature and lived and went to the cross. What for? To receive the penalty of the broken law of God. God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his stripes we are healed. He's borne my punishment. The law is satisfied positively and negatively. The law is answered. And God offers me a free forgiveness. This man finally is not far from the kingdom only. He is still outside it. Because he hasn't realized that the only way to enter it is to believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. He has not realized that the only way to enter the kingdom is to have repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. He hasn't been smashed and broken and seen his vileness, his helplessness and hopelessness. And he hasn't fallen at the feet of this blessed Son of God and has said, Have mercy upon me. Look down upon me. Redeem me. Save me. I trust my all to thee, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to the old Lamb of God I come. He hasn't heard Christ saying, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall find pasture, he shall have life, and he shall go in and out and find pasture. He is the door, the only way of entry. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. That's why he's outside, my friends. He hasn't realized that he's not kept the law. He hasn't realized that because of that he's under condemnation and the wrath of God, that he can do nothing about it himself. He hasn't believed in the one and only person who can rescue him out of that predicament and give him an abundant entry into the everlasting kingdom of God, even the Son of God. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He didn't ask the question of the Philippian jailer. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? There's only one answer to that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. God deliver us. From a mere intellectual, theoretical interest in religion and in the kingdom of God. Have you heard the law of God speaking to you? The question that every one of us shall have to answer at the eternal bar of judgment is, have you loved me with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and your neighbor as yourself? You know, he was talking about burnt offerings and sacrifices. This fellow had seen that. It'll now be, be no use telling God about all the good you've done. It isn't what he asks of you. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants you.
There's only one way to be right with God. It is to fall with adoration and simple belief at the feet of the one who said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. Have you believed? If you have, you're in the kingdom. If you haven't, you're outside, however near you may be. You're outside. And if you die like that, you will remain in everlasting misery. My dear friend, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be ye saved. Amen.